You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Folks, welcome back to part two of the eight concepts of Bowen theory. Uh, You can listen to this episode if you haven't already listened to part one. And this episode will make sense even if you didn't hear part one. But I will just say in part one, we did give just a little bit of context to these eight concepts. So that might help you. But either way, both episodes are kind of a a pair to help you understand uh, a little bit about systems theory. And ideally, if we do our job right today, Brendan, helping people uh, put some of these into practice. Right. So first concept, um, we're just going to go right into it is uh, the first one we talk about today is sibling position. Yeah. Um, Which I I honestly think a lot of people are innately already familiar with in some sense. I agree. Yeah. This was come up within 1950s and this was new then. Right. I I think a lot of people know this one now. So basically it's the idea that um, your family order that you're born into um, has an impact on the way that you act, your your characteristics, um, the the things that you do with other people, your relationships and how you interact with people from different birth, birth orders. Um, common example is oldest on some level tends to be leaders. Um, youngest tends to be a follower. Um, how do those two interact with each other in relationships and work relationships? So, yeah. So let um, me, yeah. let me read a little quick definition. Sibling position. This is one of the, 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 the what are we up to here? The fifth concept of Bowen theory, mm-hmm. a classic look at how birth order affects your outlet and behavior, not just in family and marriage, but in workplace, et cetera. Typically, if you have five or more years between siblings, you act like an only child. So if if uh, somebody's five years older than you or five years younger than you, you tend to show up more like an only child than uh, a sibling. Uh, so I'll give an example first. And if anything comes to mind for you, Brendan, yeah. I'm a youngest. Uh, my sister's three and a half years older than me. And what's interesting is I'm a pretty sensitive guy. I grew up as a pretty sensitive kid uh-huh. in my teenage years. And then into my early twenties, um, I overcompensated with a lot of confidence. That's when I really started to be a firm for leadership gifts. And it wasn't, I, I was a late bloomer. I didn't go to college till I was 20. And it wasn't until I was in college, uh, my sophomore year as 21 or 22, where people called out in me, my playfulness and my creativity. Mm. And I didn't realize that as a youngest, I roll into a room ready to have fun (laughs) rather than ready to be responsible. But because in my teenage years, I was a leader in our youth group and all of that, I always felt responsible. Plus I was insecure and I covered my insecurity through over responsibility. Wow. And so college for me was really fun because I kind of got to act like the kid that I hadn't acted like in years And then in chaplaincy, I went straight from college to hospital chaplaincy. And I started as a chaplain, um, never, I believe, inappropriately, but to figure out how do I bring playfulness and creativity into this very earnest, painful environment. And so, as you might imagine, I was smart enough to know when not to do it. But I did six months of pediatrics and kids like to play. Right. And uh, so I had like a rubber chicken that I'd show up with. And <laughs> I remember sticking it like I- IV. Kids had these IV, even if they're getting like chemotherapy or something really serious. And I'd let them use my rubber chicken for an hour and come back and get it. And just <laughs> goofy things that I would not have done if I wasn't aware how I'm wired as a youngest. Right. Uh, and so the way I've used sibling position in my own life is to be aware 
of my part to play in an organization. So you, I'm sure you've even noticed, it's very intentional, it's pretty obvious too, how often I'll sabotage a staff meeting. Yes, you will. To generate <laughs> laughter. And I'm sure there's times where it's not needed. Right. But there's times where I'm feeling this need, oh, we just need a little breather. Right. And it doesn't really contribute to the agenda. Right. Yeah, that's the youngest thing. So I'm the oldest out of four siblings. Uh, my brother's the closest to me. I think he's only two. He's only two years younger than I am. Um, so, so I tend towards, I think just doing things and just going and, and going after him, just doing it myself, trying to, and I think when I realized that I was a leader was when I first, um, I think when I got, went to college a second round, but like little things like that would show up when I was younger. So I was probably, I want to say five or six years old. We lived in an apartment complex in the Midwest. And, um, I had the idea to make a quick buck. And one of the ways that I decided to make a quick buck was I had a window scraping business in this apartment complex. So I would go around and hand out flyers to people before, um, and hand them on the door that I would scrape your windows for $1 in the morning before you left for work. And I generated some business income from that. Um, people really enjoyed that, that I, I think they were helping just a kid out, but yeah. I, it was, that was my first experience, I think with just developing something on my own, leading it, chasing it. Um, I think noticing that the, I had the ability to get people to rally around me was something else that I, I didn't really flush out until I was in college the second time. Um, that showed up um, realizing I made a huge mistake with um, grabbing a bunch of students. We had this, let me back up. So I'll be really, this is a very sensitive subject, so I'll try to you know, like not talk to in detail about what happened. But there was a situation at my college that I was going to where somebody was involved um, with an inappropriate relationship with a fellow student on campus at a Christian college. Um, and I wasn't happy with how things are being handled. And so I took it upon myself to get everybody in a room and get them super excited, grab your pitchforks and your fire sticks and let's go after them. Right. Um, had a whole school wide petition petition that got signed. Um, and finally one of the lead pastors in the area who actually was pretty involved with the school actually called me and said, Hey, you need to trust the leadership process. You're a leader and you need to be careful because when you do these things like this, you can create total separation, dissension, like yeah. all these bad things. And so for me, I've had one of the things that I've learned is, well, it's good that I can walk into situations and get people to rally underneath the cause, but I also have to stop being so serious all the time and have a little bit more of a playful attitude, which is difficult for me. Yeah. Um, so that, that's how I've noticed my sibling role as the oldest has really shown up in my life is just always having a desire, I think, to lead without like trying to be, I'm trying to think of the word because it sounds like I'm I'm a jerk, but I'm not I'm not doing trying to lead on like to get power. It's no, more of a yeah. As ahead. a youngest, it sounds like you're just very responsible. Right. That's what I'm hearing in that story. You right. felt responsible to do the right thing. Right. I think that is a like some of these some of these ideas are cliche, but right. there's a reason they're cliche. That is a fairly accurate way of being an oldest. Right. Yeah. So that's I mean that's how it showed in my life. Um, my wife is a youngest, I think. So it's been an interesting relationship with the two of us. Right. Well, she's a twin and a youngest. Yes. Which is even weirder in some yes. sense. And with a twin, it, it's funny. It would have been neat to have Kelsey on the show to share Shoot. what that's like. <laughs> because there is a fusion between twins. Right. That uh, makes things extra complicated for sure. Right. So. Yeah, they're very close. Right. How far apart are they in miles? Like, like, like 
the minutes of what, how long. Yeah, how, how far apart do they live from each other? Oh, there she's only forty five minutes from us now. Yeah, yeah. So they're pretty they're pretty close still. Yeah. So twi- that's classic with most twins. I mean, man, you think about your earliest formation in the womb, right? I just saw a, a birth video. The cutest thing: two twins born. They lay the the babies on mum's chest, and one twin reaches out and grabs the other one's hand. <laughs> It's the first oh thing my goodness. the twin did out of the womb. Wow, that's it's crazy. Like, okay, that's that's crazy. Yeah, that's tied in. Yeah, I think I think understanding that I think it helps me understand that relationship better too. Because like as an oldest, it was I always distanced myself. I think from my siblings in a, in a way because I felt like I had to be responsible and that's grown right. up. And you were kind of responsible for their well being, right? Yeah, whether I wanted to or not. That's right. Or whether they wanted you to or not. Right. Yeah. So. It's interesting how all that stuff just plays an impact on every aspect of your life, too. It's nuts. Yeah, and that's why you study um, sibling position is to really get clarity on um, how you show up in the workplace. Right. And so I'll just close with this, and then we should move on to the next one. Every trait in family systems theory and really beyond systems theory, every trait has a, an asset and a liability to it. So my playfulness is both really helpful and annoying. Right. And it, and you never quite know when. You d- and and this, your responsibility is the same. Right. And that's what's helpful is when you really get clear on what you do and how you offer it, you right. can start to learn to mitigate and get really refined mm-hmm. uh, to make it more of a gift than a curse for people. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Number six, um, triangles. Yeah. Triangles are interesting. They, they are in many ways. Um, I, I think I'm going to be ironic when I say this. The systems theory is kind of an inside joke, but they are like the bedrock of systems theory. They're in everything. They're almost in all of these concepts, aren't they? They are. Yeah. And and there's triangles and then there's triangulation. I think the biggest misunderstanding when people start studying systems theory, Bowen teaches that triangles are the most stable relationship. Mm. It's more stable. A three-person relationship is more stable than two. Mm. When people read that, they think, oh, that must mean triangles are a good thing. They can be a good thing. um, But what Bowen is saying is that when tension goes between two people, the anxiety between the two people causes instability. Mm. So they bring in a third person to help stabilize and share the load of the anxiety. And that's triangulation. And triangulation is always a bad thing. So people get confused. I've, I've run into this before when I'll teach triangulation and people will come back and say, wait a minute, Bowen says it's a good thing. And I'll have to say, no, Bowen says it's the most stable relationship. That's why we do it so much because right. we're not good at managing our anxiety with one other person. Right. So what God, about counselors and a um, um, husband and wife relationship? When, when a husband and wife are going to a therapist, yeah. therapists are actually trained to make sure they are staying out of being co-opted. Oh. Um, you know, I'm not a therapist, but I've done a lot of pastoral counseling. And it's, it's, I'll just say, Brennan, it's genuinely scary when a couple come in and one of them successfully co-ops you as a weapon against the other. Wow. It's awful. And so a trained therapist is actually skilled at staying nimble. Hmm. And both advocating for each individual without co-opting and joining their team. Hmm. And then, yeah, like a, a non-trained therapist or a therapist who is not skilled could easily get triangled in. Right. Uh, so what that could look like is if a therapist is seeing a couple and then let's say the husband calls the therapist during the week and says, hey, 
I really need therapy on my own. Could you not tell my wife? Mm. That's triangulation. Even right. though the therapist hasn't done anything, the therapist has been triangled in. I found as a pastor, um, you can get you can get triangled in without even realizing it because pastors have a confidential relationship with people. They tell you things in confidence that you're really even legally, let alone ethically bound to not spread. But sometimes in doing that, just by sharing something with you, they're actually triangling you against another person. Right. And so sometimes you have to be careful. And I've, I've done this before with people where I'll say, that's not a secret I can keep because it affects the well-being of another person. Right. So you have to tell them you told me and then I'm going to be telling them. One famous warning sign, I think, of somebody putting into a secret triangle is when they say, hey, I've got I've got a secret to tell you. Can you keep a secret? Yeah. And now I'm like, no, I can't. If it's yeah. something I don't need to know, you shouldn't be telling me. Yeah. Or it's like, well, it depends on the secret. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I shared an example at one point when we were talking about triangles where I had a friend of mine come to me with another friend's secret. Tell me the secret and say, well, now you have to keep this secret. And I'm just sitting in between a rock and a hard place where if I don't say something to this friend, they're going to be like, well, why didn't you say anything? Or if they find out that I knew and I didn't say anything, they're going to be like, well, why? You didn't care? You didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they can be pretty damaging. Yeah. Yeah. So really, generally speaking, the best, best path out of a triangle is um, informing everybody that you're going to inform everybody. Right. <laughs> um, just so you know, I'm going to tell them that you told me. So I remember a, a pastor friend of mine. He's like, hey, um, if you'd pray for me, I have to go to the guy's house and tell his wife he's having an affair. Oh, my gosh. And he, he's like, the guy told me, I told him it's not a secret I'm willing to keep. He has two days to tell his wife. He said he would. I'm going to the house. I don't think he has. Oh and sure God. enough, this poor pastor goes to the house, hasn't told the wife. Wow. And he's like, tell her. On what? What are you on? Do you want cooking? The, the guy's acting like he's just a nice visitor. Oh, no. Yeah. So uh, generally speaking, yeah. The, the other way to notice a triangle like in a family is if um, one parent says to the <laughs> child, well, you know how your mother is. That's triangulation. Right. Yeah. Anytime you are trying to gang up against a third person, and then where Bowen, where things get complicated is Bowen says, because triangles are the most stable relationship, we then form a series of interlocking triangles. And that then becomes how anxiety spreads through an organization. Right. So you get mobs of a bunch of people in triangles uh, all coming at you. It can be really something. Right. They And they, a lot of times too, they, I'm sorry, um, a lot of times they um, can be a way for people to exact control too. Right. Yeah, oftentimes a, a well-meaning person will triangulate because they simply don't have the emotional maturity to handle someone directly. Yep. And and it's usually, I used to get really frustrated with those people. I think I've come to understand now that it, it has more to do that they just feel powerless. And so their way of feeling like they have the power to manage their life is to co-opt a mob. But holy smokes, as somebody who's had mobs co-opted against me a number of times, it's so painful. Uh, and, and what tends to happen is they just don't know how to come to you and say, here's the problem I have. And so most famously what they'll do is they'll vent to a third party. The third party doesn't quite know what to do or say, so they just smile and nod. And then the person who's passionate about the issue takes their smiling and nodding as agreement. Mm. And then they, they, okay, now you're on my team. And then they come to the leader and say, me and all these people all agree about this. Right. Even though most of those people were just like either catching their anxiety 
or just saying, oh, I guess I'll just go along, you know? Right. Yeah. So how do you notice, do you have to have somebody from outside source tell you that you're in a triangle or how do you notice that you're in one with somebody? I think anytime somebody is asking you to keep a secret that affects the well-being of another person and affects your relationship with that person, you're at risk of being triangled. Um, secondly, you could watch the Gilmore Girls um, or actually any Disney preteen drama. Um, I think I put it in the book, but I was writing my book at the dining room table uh, a room over from where my daughter at the time's a preteen and she's watching some Disney drama and the very things I'm writing about in the book not to do, they're doing on the show. Oh, man. And I remember it was like a light bulb. I'm like, no wonder they call it a drama and no wonder Kaylee can't wait for the next episode because they raise the anxiety at the end of the show and leave things unresolved. They're very uh, entertaining. They're fun to watch. Right. Kelsey and I just watched 10 Things I Hate About You a couple nights ago. Yep, that's, that's probably a, example. a good example there. Almost all reality television, the producers yep. are intentionally causing triangulated relationships to generate conflict for good television. Oh, man. So you can get practice by watching uh, TV. Everybody Loves Raymond. Great example. Marie the so. mom, Raymond that, and his wife. Yep, there's a triangle there. Yep. Yeah, pretty much any drama... Um, and any reality show is going to have triangulated relationships in it. In your own life, yeah, if, if somebody comes to you and your well-being or their well-being or with each other is, is affected, and then you can just be careful about secret keeping, about talking about someone in a way that you would not talk about them if they were in the room. Right. So gossip is always a triangle. So if you're a church leader listening to this, you're well acquainted with triangles just by nature of leading a church. wake up feeling depleted, defeated, and overwhelmed. We know this because we're pastors and we felt it, which is why we created a podcast called The Monday Morning Pastor. It's a weekly podcast to encourage, equip, challenge, and resource pastors and kingdom leaders each Monday morning. We want to tell and hear stories of hope and encouragement in the midst of this unique place and culture where the negative ministry stories seem to get all the airtime. Our hope is that these stories resonate with and remind pastors why we stay in the game. It's a podcast that gives pastors hope and a safe place to be people who need to receive the good news on the day where we feel the most vulnerable. So we invite you to join us and listen to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, where pastors can be people. You can find us on kairospartnerships.org, Missio Alliance, or anywhere podcasts are available. All right. Number seven, emotional cutoff. Yeah. So, okay. So you covered this, I think, really well in the last episode. So do you want to define it or I can define it? Yeah. So I think in my own um, personal family genogram life, um, emotional cutoff is anytime somebody doesn't want to have to deal with the problem anymore um, or they think that they're dealing with the problem by cutting off all contact with a person in their life who they think is either the problem or yeah, I'm getting rid of the problem. So, yeah. 
So it's also um, emotional cutoff is also a severe way of dealing with your anxiety with another person. And just as we speak, scrolling to try to try to find where it is on my little Twitter feed, um, which oddly I now cannot find. So. Have to punt on so that. I can I can read it off. Yeah, go ahead. Let's do that. Um, people sometimes manage their un- unresolved emotional issues with parents, siblings, or other family members by reducing or totally cutting off emotional contact with them. This resolves nothing and risks making new relationships too important. Um, yeah. So it's you know, I think there's plenty of families out there, and probably friendships too, where. Um, somebody is either too much for you to be around anymore. Um, they're too much drama. They bring too much to the table. Um, or maybe they've hurt you in some way. And every time you try to talk about it, they don't want to talk about it. And so you think probably the healthiest thing to do is to cut them off. Right. Um, which actually I've got a question about this at one point. Is there any point yes. in a relationship? The answer is yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. That's cause I was, yeah. Yeah. There, there are some, uh, relationships that you have to cut off for your own safety. So, um, for, you know, we don't cover on this podcast and in our work uh, extreme trauma and abuse. Right. Even though uh, what we do can help people in trauma and abuse, I believe they do need tools beyond what we can help with. Right. But sometimes cutoff is necessary in domestic violence. In ongoing addiction, sometimes cutoff is required. Right. Um, and then abuse. So, you know, the classic go-to book on this would be really anything written by Henry Cloud, but Boundaries is is his right. go-to book. But I'll, I'll say this. What tends to happen with cutoff, particularly if you are avoidant of conflict, just by nature, you stuff and stuff and stuff and you don't know how to express. And so what happens is you take it and take it and take it and then you boil over and explode and then you cut off. What systems theory helps us with, particularly through differentiation, is give you, um, if, if you, you'd almost treat the relationship more like a bungee cord between you and the other person rather mm-hmm. than a pair of scissors. Right. Um, I, I think if you're passive aggressive, for example, if you're a conflict avoider, somebody does something and it hurts you and you don't know how to tell them and resolve it, and you end up stuffing, and then, or, or maybe you're fused or codependent with them, and then it's some kind of a last straw syndrome. Right. And That's you, it. I'm, I'm you last straw. You cut them off. You're yeah. just like, enough. And you you don't recognize that that's your emotional, you can grow emotionally maturely in that way and, and handle more ambiguity in the relationship. I don't feel like I'm explaining it well. But um, when you learn about cutoff and you learn about differentiation, it actually gives you the tools to manage conflict before you get to the cutoff. Right. Having said that, yes, like... Uh, let's, let's use, um, let's use a domestic violence relationship. Okay. Let's use an addiction years ago. Um, it was in Nevada. I did a lot of crisis intervention and I remember a a guy coming to me and he, his wife was a alcoholic and he had begged her to stop. The police had been involved. There'd been abuse toward him from her unusual case. And one day he came in and he asked, you know, is divorce a sin? We talked about it. Why are you asking? And and he said to me, he said, look, I don't want to leave her. I just, we've been at it 25 years and my patterns of behavior are part of why she keeps drinking. And her only chance of getting well is if I leave. Wow. 
I'd never heard it put that way before. I'm not condoning divorce. I'm not saying, but I think he was actually onto something. He was trying to say, I have tried for years to change the way I relate to her. And I keep falling back into the old codependency patterns. I'm leaving. And he, he said to me, I'm giving her everything. I'm leaving with nothing. I'm giving her every chance of success but she's going to drink herself to death if I don't leave. I was like, this is really wild. So that would be an example of he had he felt he, he had, had to, to cut her off for his good, but he also believed, and I believe him, I don't believe he was using any excuse, he had to cut her off for, I believe, her sake too. That's pretty right. extreme, but there's an example. Right. But if you're not in any of those extreme examples, it's probably not a good idea to do it. Yeah. It's easier said than done because I think a lot of families and people in families think that their situations are very unique. But yeah. then when you start to talk with the other people, like it's not. Like there's so many families that struggle with the same thing. Yeah. Um, and honestly, it might seem like it's it's the right solution at the time. But I, I think you, and you're using this bungee example of like, if you let the tension stretch and stretch and stretch, eventually a bungee cord is going to snap back yeah, and right. you have to stick it out. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. And I think for church leaders... What I found often happens with a church leader that gets criticized again and again by the same people is their temptation to cut those people off is so high. Right. And I get it. It's out of self-protection. The people are piling on. Um, But your ability to try to stay connected to people who even are against you. um, Obviously, boy, Brendan, even as we're talking about it, I'm just thinking, man, we can't cover all the bases here. Obviously, only our listeners and their loved ones know when they need help, when they can't take one more hit. You know what? I'm just feeling that, like, as we give this advice, there could right. be someone at the end of their rope saying, oh, they said we should stick it out. Right. I don't know about that, but I have noticed that in leadership, sometimes the response to criticism or difficult people is to demonize them. Right. And what I've learned in my own life, and it's pretty humbling, is when I have an anger fantasy about that person uh, in my head, you know, they're wrong, I'm right. Um, that's evidence that I'm standing on self-righteousness, not the gospel. Right. But, but in the gospel, Jesus died for those people. They're fully human people. Uh, and so, yes, somehow you do have to protect yourself, but, um, you don't have to cast them out of your community. I'll just boldly say, I know we have discovery listeners, uh, listen to this show. And because I'm not going to name names. We have people at discovery that don't think two, two hoots about me but are active, thriving members of Discovery. Right. That's great with me. Mm-hmm. Like if they're finding community, finding the gospel, they and I don't need to, they don't need to like me, for example. Right. And that took some work. I think old me would have wanted to cut them off. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I think in the the book from Robert, um, or Roberta, Roberta, I'm sorry. Yeah, Roberta, Gilbert. Dr. Roberta Gilbert. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, she actually says that America is a society of emotional cutoff. Yes, and she's I the think, first one to really name it that way. And I think it actually ties into our eighth concept very closely, is right. the societal emotional process. Uh, societal emotional regression. There you go. Yep. Um, th- how all of this stuff, all of your family things, um, there's this system that governs our society that we all fall into as a whole. And like, for example, here in America, that's our, that's where we live. So this is the, the process that's going to happen. Um, her, Roberta's saying, Dr. Roberta's saying that about emotional cutoff being an American thing. I think we can even see that happening now Good. Yeah. in our American political Politically, it's like the most obvious sign is politically. But right. even in the church, the Southern Baptist Church right now right. is under like almost a civil war. Right. Yes, yeah, so the societal emotional regression. Do you want to read the definition there? Yeah, sure. 
Um, this concept describes how the emotional system governs behavior on a societal level, similar to that within a family, which promotes both progressive and regressive periods in a society. Right. Here's what I put on my happy little tweet. <laughs> uh, societal emotional regression. Society grows more anxious like a family does. On a macro level, societies increase anxiety when overpopulated, during scarcity of resources, during epidemics, and during economic forces out of control. Yep. When that happens, societies regress into anxiety and high reactivity. Right. So, oh man, there's such a good, there's a, there's a really good thing too. Can I share this? Absolutely. Let's so do this it. is from, um, the eight concepts of Bowen theory by Dr. Roberta Gilbert. It's we'll pretty dry. A, we'll put a link yeah, in the show notes. Yeah, dry. it is a little dry. I hope, um, hope Dr. Gilbert's not listening, but yeah, sorry. it's a dry book. Um, so this one is she, it's, it's about this whole process. And this is what she says. In 1940, the teachers in California were pulled to find out what they considered the most troublesome problems they faced. The results were talking, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, getting out of line, wearing improper clothing, not putting paper in the wastebasket. Again, in 1990, 50 years later, they were pulled. This time, the answers were quite different. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault. In 50 years, our society had changed a great deal if the schools were any indication. Consider also that between 1963 and 93, the crime rate went up 360%. Youth crime went up 200, teen pregnancy up 600, and teen suicide up 300%. So in 1991, less than 60% of children were living with their biological married parents. So she starts to list these reasons of possibility why they happen. Right. But it's, it's funny how different periods of our history and just different periods of countries' histories, like there's an entire societal understanding either of anxiety or calmness. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I, I would say I, I do not know American history in depth as an Australian, but it feels to me since I've lived in the United States since 1992, we are at an all-time anxiety limit. Oh, my gosh. Today. Yeah, so systems theory, um, we, we mentioned it briefly in the first episode. The big idea is rather than just noticing problems inside us, notice problems between us and pay attention to how somebody else's anxiety infects yours Right. How yours infects other people. And you can also pay attention. This is the most fun. You can pay attention to how anxiety spreads in any group. Right. A uh, couple little party tricks people can do if they want. Uh, next time you're in a staff meeting, if you have a small staff, <laughs> it doesn't have to be all the staff, even if it's like if you have a department, get everybody except one person ahead of time <laughs> to look at one person and not blink. Right. And then you'll watch that one person just get suddenly anxious. That's like a prank, <laughs> just a simple prank. Uh, another thing, I had a friend of mine, he also went through chaplaincy. He came out the other side and he said, what I just enjoy is walking into a room, listening for a while, and then I simply say, are you going to let him get away with that? <laughs> and it's just a giant pot stir. And then he right. just likes to watch what happens. So that's cruel, but you can start to pay attention to the way anxiety operates in a group because it's not a family system theory isn't interested in just my anxiety and your anxiety. It's interested in a whole group. So... It started on the therapy couch with families. Murray Bowen used to bring into the psych ward, not just mum and dad, but brothers and sisters, grandparents, cousins. Sometimes you'd have 30, 40 people in the clinic trying to work on. I think that's a bit of an overreaction, but that's the point. Uh, Ed Friedman came along in the 1980s and he took family system theory off the therapy couch and put it in the congregation. Right. And he said, hey, I think a congregation acts like a family. 
And his seminal book on that is Generation to Generation, uh, right. really for clergy. Uh, and then uh, Friedman got famous with that. He started getting brought into corporate. And by the time he died, he was actually working with Colin Powell and uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the military. And I don't know if it was Powell who said this to Friedman, but it was one of the, the military generals said, the military acts like a family. <laughs> So the big idea with societal regression is any group of people takes on family dynamics, right. catches each other's anxiety. Here we are in 2020, election year. Well, didn't Bowen add this theory later in his life? Yeah, he did develop all these theories. You know, that's a great question. I think he had them developed by the early 1970s, but they okay. didn't all show up in 1954 for right. sure. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because you, you can clearly watch this – play like as a family play out in American society today. Yeah. It's, it's very granted. It's a little bit more heated, I think. Well, we're so reactive to each other right, right. now. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. it's not. So if Bowen were alive today or Friedman were alive today, they would simply be nodding and saying, I told you this, like they predicted this very predicament we're in right now. Really? And mm -hmm. so what's required is, is Friedman's, probably most famous work, it's called A Failure of Nerve. Right. And Friedman says what we need are courageous leaders who can be a non-anxious presence. Right. Uh, which we've now, I even wrote about non-anxious presence, but now that the, my book is out, I've been teaching it, I've changed it to calm presence. Mm. Because I think non-anxious presence gives the false impression that you are not anxious. Right. But what's actually true is you're managing your anxiety. Right. So I, I call it now calm presence. What, what I think our society needs is uh, hundreds of thousands of leaders who can be calmly present in an anxious culture. Right. And if we don't get that, we will not calm down. And right. we do not have a leader in the White House who is a calm presence, and we do not have very many candidates on the other side who are no, a calm presence right now. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's, I mean, if, if any subject today, I think in today's episode is going to probably, we're probably going to dive into more. I think that this one's probably something that I think a lot of people like, I think we just need to talk about, like, you know, I, 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 there was a book I read for a class a couple of years back called, um, can we all disagree more constructively? Yeah. Right. It's very short. Um, I think it's only like a hundred pages or something like that, but it's, it's funny cause it talked and I never, I never knew this cause I'm younger. Like I, the, the way that I've grown up and the society I've grown up in has been very high anxiety, everything, the world's going to end. It's all terrible. Right. Um, but he talked about how at one point in time, um, if you want to call congressmen from both sides of the aisle families, they would all live in Washington right? and they all interacted with each other and they all lots um, of social time, lots together. Of social time together. So they, they were like a connected family. And now you've got these people that are live their um, senators, congressmen, whatever they're living back in their home States with their constituents and they barely get any action time with the people from the opposite side of the aisle. And so then that within itself is almost a cutoff relationship. That's right. Where you don't have any contact with this person anymore. And the moment that you do have contact, it's a very volatile contact. And so then we've created this, I can't remember who coined this term, but I think I heard it on a radio um, podcast was um, identity politics hmm. is that we have changed the family systems theory sense into saying, I identify as this, you identify as that. Yeah. My core being is Republican or Democrat. Right. Or and yeah. we don't sit down and try to work through that cutoff. Cause I think right now the emotional cutoff is where our country's at yeah. is that we're very cut off from one another. And I think to bridge that gap, we have to start sitting down with each other and just 
seeing them as a human being, like it might just, you know, Bob from across the street, who might be a really left-wing liberal, you need to invite him over to your barbecue. Like, yeah, there's a couple of like, I'm thinking social media. So cancel culture is an example uh, of cutoff. Um, okay. Boomer. Right. That's a cutoff statement. Right. I'll admit I've said that a couple of times. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But even, even whatever generated okay. Boomer was some boomers trying to, you know, speak right. down, but it's still, I, I had a boomer, um, recently tell me how hurt they were by that. It was interesting because right. of all that they've contributed to society, this person and all that they've done and just to be flicked away with right. a, a cynical phrase. Yeah. The other thing I think we should say about emotional cutoff, cause we're speaking in doom tendency is, um, what's fascinating. Maybe this should be our third episode on this one day. Where's the gospel in family systems theory, right? Because to, to the best of our knowledge, Bowen was not a believer. His ninth concept did have something to do with a divine presence. He was starting to kick around the idea of a divine presence when he died. But what I'm fascinated with is when you go from societal, uh, societal emotional regression and you go back down to local community, you see so much gospel, right. so much good work. Right. I, I just drove back this morning. Uh, you know, we live half an hour north of Denver. And I got with a friend of mine who lives in Colorado Springs. We both drove about an hour to meet early in the morning for breakfast. And we were just sharing with each other what our churches are doing for the poor right. and what we're doing to serve our cities. And he was saying, he's like, you know, we are the first church and we're not the only church in the Springs, but we're the first church that, that social workers call. And that's our church as well. Right. And you start to realize, man, the gospel really is creating local micro communities of calm presence outside the media, outside the political platform. Uh, and, and I'm sure it must also be true. I don't have any insight into politics. It must also be true that the gospel's alive and well in the political in Washington, DC, right. but it's not being watched on CNN and Fox. Right. And then, you know, maybe this would be a, a fascinating episode, but to talk, what, what vested interest does the media, regardless of the media's outlets, political affiliation, it has a vested interest in keeping us at odds with each other. Right. Yeah. That's uh, so bizarre. Yeah. I think you've, you've said before, I think, and I, I don't know if it was a sermon or just a conversation where I think one of the most beautiful aspects of the good news of like Jesus is that when that, at the time period, like people were coming to church like you'd have the head of the household, the, the wife, the kid, right. and then the servant or the slave. And then when they came to church on Sunday morning, and I mean, probably not Sunday, but when they came to church together, yeah. they were all on the same grounds. They were all equal across the board. And I yeah. think, man, that today, like if we could get that yeah. and the rest of society today, that we're all in the same playing field, that we all, when we work together, so much better things can happen with the power of Christ like that. That's radical. That's amazing. Yeah. Whatever boundary keeps you separated outside the church is demolished inside the church. Right. And it I should think, be. Yeah. I think that was Paul's vision for the church. I also personally think that's why the early church exploded in growth. It's because somebody like a, a household servant or a slave who's a nobody outside the church becomes a son of God in or a daughter of God inside the church. Right. So serving, beautiful. The, serving the, the head of the household community or the, commun the head of the household serving their community. Yeah. Like, that's, you know, that's an imaginative idea, but we, we, we've, I think I've used it in a sermon, the, the idea that, that when a family in say Corinth wanted to attend church, the household servant had to get up earlier to get their clothes ready to serve their meal. Household servant then eats last. Right. They walk to church together and then inside the church, it's the head of the household who's serving right. communion to the servant who's a, you know, son of the king. 
uh, I think that's pretty remarkable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty fun stuff. All right, folks. So that's the eight concepts of Bowen theory. And uh, just like we did last episode, you can listen last episode to get some additional resources, not just from us, but from other uh, groups that we know that do really good work. And uh, thanks for tuning in. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 